Hello, AJT readers. This is Josh Lemitsky. Uh, this is your September 2021 AJT highlights for the journal. Um, today, uh, Roz Manon was not able to be on the podcast today, but we have two exciting guests uh, who we've invited. One is our transplant fellow, the AJT fellow, Dr. Abdul Osaini, who just finished his transplant hepatology fellowship at Johns Hopkins and will be a faculty at the University of Oklahoma in hepatology this year. And we also have uh, Dr. Paolo Prevetti, a very well-known established transplant nephrologist, immunologist at Mount Sinai, to discuss a couple of the basic science papers. So what I'm going to do is uh, go over the list of the papers in the order that we're going to be discussing them today. So Dr. Osaini will kick off this podcast with uh, the first paper, which is entitled Nonviral Liver Disease is the Leading Indication for Liver Transplant in the United States in Persons Living with Human Immunodeficiency Virus. And the first author is Campos Varela. There is an editorial by Durand and colleagues accompanying that. Then Dr. Osei will, will review the paper entitled Every Two-Month Bellatacid Maintenance Therapy in Kidney Transplant Recipients Greater Than One Year Post-Transplant, a Randomized Non-Inferiority Trial, and Badel is the first author. Then Dr. Crevetti will uh, move into some basic science papers, the first being Fibroblast Growth Factor 7, Releasing Particles, Enhance Islet Engraftment, and Improve Metabolic Control Following Islet Transplantation in Mice with Diabetes by Alwash et al., but also with an editorial by Pepper and Corbett. And uh, the next paper is Bioenergetic Maladaptation and Release of HMGB1 in Calcinern Inhibitor-Mediated Nephrotoxicity by Majuska et al., and there's also an editorial about by Pellet. And I will finish with a clinical lung transplant uh, paper entitled Different Team Procurements, a Potential Solution for the Unintended Consequences of Change in Lung Allocation Policy by Yang et al. So uh, first, I'd like to introduce Dr. Asani to go over the, the first talk and just take it away. Welcome. Thank you very much, Dr. Levinsky. Uh, first of all, I wish to thank the AST and AJT, as well as Dr. Levitsky and all the staff at AJT for this opportunity to serve as the fellow editor in this journal. I said the title for my paper is Non-Viral Liver Disease is the Leading Indication for Liver Transplant for Liver Transplant in the United States in Persons Living with Human Immunodeficiency Virus, or HIV. This paper by Campos Valera and colleagues it's an analysis of U.S. liver transplant registry reflecting some major changes in the landscape and outcomes of liver transplantation in persons living with uh, HIV. As a background, there are two things I would like to mention. First, there was this paper by Dr. Michael Charlton and colleagues in 2011 when he was at the Mayo Clinic. They projected that NASH will become the most common indication for liver transplantation between 2020 and 2025. In other words, we were shifting from a majorly infectious indication for liver transplant led by HCV infections into a metabolic landscape driven by NASH. And as we all know now, uh, alcoholic liver disease. So does this trend also hold true for persons with um, living with uh, HIV. 
The second issue is specific to this group of patients living with HIV. The early days of liver transplants was beset with some major problems such as hepatitis C, co-infection, and early organ rejection. Indeed, a multi-center study published in 2012 showed that the three-year graph survival for HIV, HCV co-infected patients was 60% and acute rejection rate was around 40%, both of which were unacceptable. As a result, many transplant centers began to shut their doors, particularly to HIV, HCV co-infected persons, given their poor liver transplant outcomes. But then the direct acting antivirals or DEAs came into play with uh, HCV cure rates close to our 100% even in liver transplant recipients with HIV. In a way, this paper by Campos Valera and colleagues will try to help us understand how these developments may have shifted the goalposts in terms of liver transplant outcomes for the persons with HIV. For the study itself, the authors evaluated whether indications for liver transplant have changed among people with or without HIV infection. And they compared liver transplant outcomes and trends by HIV serostatus. They looked at a 10-year liver transplant recipient data, data between 2008 and 2018 from the UNOS-OPTN database. Among over 62,000 liver transplant patients, 352, amounting to 0.6%, were HIV infected. They found not only that the proportion of HIV infected patients have increased over time, but that the number of transplant centers performing liver transplant for HIV infected recipients have also increased at an average annual percentage change of, of close to 10%. Importantly, the non-viral causes or non-viral causes fueled by NASH and alcoholic liver disease became the leading indication for liver transplant in 2015 for HIV uninfected recipients and in 2018 for HIV-infected patients. They found the three-year cumulative patient survival rates were now comparable between the two groups, and that over time, both graft and patient survival rates have also improved for both HIV-positive and negative patients as well. When they looked specifically at HCV-infected liver transplant recipients, they found some significant difference in the three-year patient survival rates between the two groups. However, when they performed the sub-analysis restricted to 2014 and 2018, when interferon-free DAAs were into play, the differences in graft and patient survival by HIV serostatus were no longer observed. The authors therefore concluded that in the United States, non-viral liver disease is now the leading indication for liver transplant in HIV-infected patients, and that Post-transplant outcomes have also improved over time and are, are now comparable to HIV non-infected recipients. I did look at the editorial, and then the editorial notes that if HIV, sorry, if HCV is no longer the primary indication for liver transplantation for persons living with HIV, it is a result of the significant impact and success of DEAs in the care of this community. It also calls our attention to the broader trend and consequences of metabolic issues in persons living with HIV, given the rise in hyperlipidemia, obesity, and diabetes, which may be partly due to adverse metabolic effects of antiretrovirals. Then there is the added metabolic effects of corticosteroids and calcineurin inhibitors after transplant. These events suggest that metabolic diseases may emerge not only as primary cause of end-stage organ disease, but also a major 
post-transplant management challenge for persons living with HIV. The article then brings to the fore the question of how we are going to deal with an increasing liver transplant demand in the face of current organ shortage. The hope is that such initiatives as the HIV Organ Policy Equity Act, which has opened the doors for transplant from donors with HIV to recipients with HIV, will add to the organ pool for these group of patients uh, living with HIV. Overall, my, in my opinion, the authors have shown that with the good news of increased patient and graft, and graft survival in persons living with HIV after liver transplant, comes a challenging landscape of metabolic issues that the transplant community will have to get ready to tackle. Thank you. Great. Thank you, uh, Dr. Hosseini. I, I wanted to just give uh, a couple comments, just a perspective here, since you're, you know, you, you're probably too young to to know the history of this. But looking backwards, this was in, in all of organ transplant, but particularly in liver. When I was a fellow about 20 years ago, it was basically almost unheard of to transplant a, a patient with HIV. And then we started doing some transplants for select patients with hepatitis B virus. But the hepatitis C outcomes were very poor. And this made it very difficult to get patients they get recurrent uh, recurrent disease. The rejection was also higher, interestingly, in the population. And, you know, the landscape has just completely changed um, with DAA therapy and also hepatitis B antiviral therapy. And basically, these patients are, are very much similar, like you said, to the general population. They just have HIV-controlled disease. So it's really just a, an amazing sort of uh, change over the last uh, many patients too with a hepatitis C going down but I think particularly for HIV they were really impacted by hepatitis C virus and uh, many centers were just not considering HIV positive patients because of the poor outcomes so very exciting to see this and also the the HIV positive and the positive transplants is also a great uh, direction that we moved in I did want to ask you, maybe as a hepatologist, you know, what would you now advise somebody with HIV and NASH that, you know, has controlled HIV that you're kind of worried about? Do you, do you think that this progresses more quickly in HIV positive patients than the negative? And if so, we, we're going to be seeing, you know, an, an increased rate of NASH liver transplants above the general population if it progresses more quickly. Just wanted to see your thoughts. Yeah, thank you very much. Yeah, I personally think for the HIV uh, population, the issue may be a bit more progressive than uh, the general population in that they only not have to deal with immunosuppressive uh, therapy um, after transplant, which carries its own metabolic side effects. They have their own antiretrovirals uh, to deal with. And um, with the with the, is it the integrase integrase uh, strand um, antiretrovirals that have come uh, into play, you know the risk has even gone higher in terms of hyperlipidemia uh, and met metabolic derangement in these patients. So certainly uh, for the HIV community, uh, their risks are a bit higher, especially in the post post transplant setting where they will have to deal with dual 
um, immunosuppression and then their own antivirals they have to um, live on. Yeah, I agree. I would consider them kind of a high-risk NASH group going into transplant and coming out that um, and we should really consider them for, you know, uh, dietary and metabolic modification interventions and not, not exclude them because of their HIV positivity. But it's, but it's really uh, an amazing story. So why don't, why don't we move on to your next paper, which is completely different, which is Belatacept in, in kidney transplant? Yes, sir. So the topic is, uh, or the, the title for the article is, every two-month Belatacept maintenance therapy in kidney transplant recipients greater than one year post-transplant. A randomized non-inferiority trial. So this is a paper from uh, Bedell and colleagues from Emory University in Georgia. As we all know, kidney transplantation remains a definitive treatment for patients with end-stage renal disease with clear survival and quality of life benefits. In spite of good short-term outcomes, there's still more room for improvement in terms of the long-term outcomes. Some of the barriers uh, to improving outcomes include calcineurin uh, or CNI-induced nephrotoxicity and other metabolic derangements, as well as immunologic injury from antibodies against the donor. In fact, studies have shown that by the end of two years after transplant, as many as 50% of patients on CNIs develop nephrotoxicity, hence the need for alternate, alternative options for long-term immunosuppression. Belatisep comes in as a selective T-cell co-stimulation blocker, which has shown great promise as a CNI alternative for maintenance immunosuppression in kidney transplantation. In the phase three benefit study, Belatisep led to a 43 percent reduction in the risk of death and graft loss, along with enhanced renal function, even seven years post-transplant, when compared to those on cyclosporin. However, Belatisep utilization has remained low, with most patients still initiated on CNI-based regimen. The slow uptake of Belatisep is blamed on higher early acute rejection rates and also logistical challenges related to its monthly IP access and infusion requirements, as well as other concerns about cost and uh, protective immunity against viral pathogens. Therefore, the authors here saw an immediate need to develop strategies that will overcome these obstacles and facilitate greater use of Belacept as standard long-term immunosuppressive therapy in kidney transplant. They made good use of the findings of the previous phase two randomized trial on the efficacy of Belacept, where steady subjects were first randomized to Belacept or cyclosporin-based immunosuppression, and then the Belacept-treated patients were re-randomized to receive infusions every four weeks or every eight weeks. After 10 years, the subjects receiving Belacept every eight weeks had higher cumulative acute rejection rates, but similar to those receiving Belacept every four weeks and they maintained superior renal function when compared to uh, cyclosporin-treated patients without differences in patient death or graft loss. One issue though uh, with the benefit study was that it was not powered to measure differences between four and eight week Belasip groups. And because of the double randomization design, it was not clear if the increased incidence of rejections in the eight week group was due to the prolonged dosing interval or due to other factors. However, one thing stood out, which uh, the authors noted, that the vast majority of rejection occurred early within the first year post-transplant. 
A renal function and rejection rate were stable and similar between the two groups, that is the four and eight week groups, beyond the first year. Therefore, Bedell and his colleagues saw an opening in this, and this time they decided to test the hypothesis that Belatisep administered every two months will be non-inferior to standard monthly dosing at maintaining renal function and renal transplant recipients. They designed a randomized controlled non-inferiority trial with the primary objective to assess renal function as measured by estimated GFR 12 months post-randomization. And they chose stable, low immunologic risk patients to receive velocept every two months as compared to reference monthly dosing. They made a determination of non-inferiority based on a pre-specified difference in mean uh, eGFR of six uh, between the two groups. This uh, non-inferiority margin uh, was based on a previous study. So in all, 166 patients were randomized to receive velocity infusions every month. There were 82 of those, uh, or, or every two months, which were 84. Out of 163 patients who received treatment, 153 of them re representing 76 participants from the, from the one-month group and 77 from the two-month group completed the 12-month study. The authors found that every two-month belatisib was non-inferior to every month infusions, as the difference in mean EGFR adjusted for baseline renal function did not exceed the non-inferiority margin of six that was preset. They reported that the two-month dosing was safe and well-tolerated with no patient deaths or graft losses. There were, however, four rejection episodes and three cases of uh, donor-specific uh, antibodies or DSAs. That occurred among the two-month uh, Belasip infusion uh, group. Most of these were attributed to participants deemed to be non-compliant with the study protocol. Therefore, the authors concluded that every two-month Belasip therapy may facilitate long-term utilization, but future multi-center studies with long-term follow-up will further elucidate immunology risk. Well, for me as a newcomer to the transplant field, I'm sure. Uh, we can all recall during our training days the difficulties that um, the difficulties with IV access uh, that these uh, ancient renal disease patients face and how their lives have been tied not only to the dialysis machine but to one IV infusion after another for one reason or the other. Therefore, while this study is an important step at alleviating the issues with IV infusions, I still look forward to a better oral alternative to uh, the calcineum inhibitors. Thanks. Great. Thanks so much for that. And it, it, it's really nice to as a, uh, get used to as a, uh, a transplant epitologist looking at other organ trials. You, you learn a lot from that. And this, this one, to me, we did have a Bellatasset trial in, in liver uh, transplant, and it really went well for a while, but there was some late mortality increase. And you sort of wonder, and it, and it got stopped early you kind of wonder whether um, it could be uh, spaced out like this in the liver transplant recipient. Maybe there'd be less to toxicity or less immunosuppression. I don't know if this, this can be resurrected, but I thought this was uh, certainly certainly interesting and also better for patients to come in every two months than every month, certainly. Sure. Yeah. I'm Paolo, do you have any uh, comments from the yeah. um, nephrology side? Yeah, I, I think the CTLA4H is, uh, is, is, 
It's a wonderful molecule, it's a, and it's a, it's, a, it's a very successful scientific achievement and probably one of the most important steps forward, I would say, after the introduction of cyclosporin. But very few patients are actually using it because of logistic issues, as Hugh Abdul highlighted, and the fact that in Europe, for example, in many countries, the, the costs are not being covered by the healthcare system. So hopefully this new um, administration strategy will simplify the use uh, of Bilatacept in, um, in organ transplant recipients in general. Yeah. Yeah, wonderful. Well, great. So that's a good segue into um, your two basic science articles, if, if you could review them for us. Thanks. Yeah. Um, thank you, Josh. Um, so the, the, the first paper by Alwash et al. Uh, focuses on the issue of uh, islet uh, transplant and graftment. So um, just a little background on islet transplantation, which is a procedure that is restricted to patients with type 1 diabetes and life-threatening uh, hypoglycemic uh, unawareness. So after um, islet transplantation, the hypoglycemic episodes are often resolved and the uh, glycemic controls improves, but uh, the, the long-term insulin independence is, is uncommon and patients have to face the burden of lifelong immune suppression to prevent rejection. And um, the auto and autoimmune response are actually the main determinants of the poor survival of the islet transplants. However, the limited islet engraftment in the liver, which is still the sites where these islets are primarily transplanted, even though not the only one, is another important reason that is responsible for the early um, islet transplant failure. So um, during the first two, three days after injection into the portal vein, the islet are not really vascularized inside the liver and over 60% of them dies. So uh, multiple pancreas donors, normally two to three, four are required to reach a critical islet mass to impact glycemic control, which represents another um, limitation of the islet transplant procedure. Partial hepatectomy promotes liver cell proliferation and islet engraftment in rodents by improving the islet vascularization. But of course, this approach is not clinically applicable. So the, the authors of, uh, of this study explored an alternative uh, avenue. Um, there's growth factors, including the fibroblast growth uh, factor, that can promote hepatocyte proliferation and improve the efficacy of uh, retroviral gene uh, delivery in the liver. But these growth factors have very short half-life, and when they're given systemically, they may have off-target effects. So to make this approach clinically uh, applicable, Alwash et et al. took advantage of nanoparticle technology. So what they did, they first showed that um, FGF or fibroblast growth factor enhanced um, liver cell proliferation more than other growth factors in short-term experiments. So then they focused on this molecule and then they identified the ideal dose of FGF releasing particles and showed that uh, particles that were loaded with FGF were able to promote transient hepatocyte proliferation. 
by releasing the FG, uh, FGF predominantly in the first two days after injection. The route of administration and the size of the particles influence their uh, sequestration within the different organs. And in particular, for targeted delivery to deliver, to deliver the, the authors use PLGA polymer with galactose added because the hepatocyte membranes are rich of receptors that have a specific binding activity affinity toward the galactose that is attached to these nanoparticles. Um, so when um, the, these nanoparticles were injected uh, in the portal vein, they uh, showed an increased hepatocyte proliferation without systemic effects, which is actually the, the goal of this of this project. And at six weeks after injection, the hepatocyte proliferation returned to normal level, which is another important uh, point for safety concern. The body weight of the mice was stable, uh, as well as the, the liver function. And when, importantly, when, when the authors co-transplanted a marginal mass of 400 syngenaic islet together with FGF-releasing nanoparticles in the portal vein of these mice, they showed normal glycemic control over a six-week follow-up period. And um, these mice were made diabetic by streptozotocin injection, which is toxic to um, um, islets. Uh, and this was not obtained when islets were injected alone. The authors were also able to uh, show that FGF-releasing nanoparticles promoted increased vascularization of islet inside the liver with enhanced staining for an endothelial marker such as CD131. And uh, importantly, when uh, while subcutaneous injection of FGF increased hepatocyte proliferation, it did not increase islet engraftment and survival. So um, the impact of uh, FGF on islet engraftment was also independent from a direct effect of FGF on native pancreas regeneration or transplanted islets. The authors do not address how liver uh, proliferation promotes uh, islet engraftment, but prior studies indicate that it facilitates early islet vascularization and has anti-inflammatory activity. A caveat of the present study is, uh, and this is actually an important caveat, is that the authors did not test how this strategy affects islet survival in models in which allo and or autoimmune response are present, which is what we have in patients with type 1 uh, diabetes. Um, however, how is stated in the editorial uh, by Pepper and Corbett, this is an important paper that may pave the way to future clinical trials testing the hypothesis that this particle releasing FGF or other growth factors can improve islet uh, engraftment in the liver. And this may lead uh, to longer insulin independence and lower requirement of pancreas donors. The authors uh, also estimate that uh, the FGF dose that is needed in the particles to promote islet engraftment would be uh, over 250 folds lower than the licensed dose of FGF uh, for treating oral uh, mucositis, so um, supporting um, feasibility of such a, such a clinical study. And I think that the impact of these findings 
probably goes beyond islet transplantation, and these results may offer new opportunities for organ-targeted therapies in general. So um, overall, um, a very interesting and relevant paper with the potential to be translated into the clinic. And uh, if effective, the use of FGF releasing nanoparticles could allow a better glycemic control with a lower amount of transplanted in, uh, islets, enabling more patients to be, uh, to be transplanted. Thank you, Paolo. I, I, uh, the burning question in my mind after looking at this was the, you know, applications even outside of uh, islet transplantation and in, in nanoparticles. Um, maybe just briefly, what's your, what are your thoughts on the the clinical application of nanoparticles? Like, are are we very far from that? Um, are you aware of studies being done in, you know, early phase studies or anything in in organ transplantation? So this is a rapidly uh, growing uh, field and uh, actually the nanoparticle technology allowed also the, the RNA-based uh, vaccine technology that we, we mm -hmm. took advantage recently. So, um, so um, there, there's many um, preclinical studies uh, using uh, nanoparticles in, in, in different organs. Um, I'm not really um, aware of uh, phase one uh, studies, but it's, uh, it's possible that uh, that they are uh, ongoing or that soon they will be they will be done because it's really um, uh, a nice uh, strategy to selectively target organs or even cells without or with very limited uh, off-target effect. Yeah, you could imagine immunosuppression. Uh, being delivered this way also to an organ, uh, potentially, you know, yeah. to, to target the organ itself, uh, the white cells, the leukocytes or something rather than systemic, the, um, I mean, probably which leads into your, the next paper, which is on immunosuppression toxicity. So can you, um, <laughs> can you go, can you talk about the, um, the paper by Zmajuska? Yeah, uh, yeah, absolutely. So this, um, this paper, as you, as you just said, addresses another critical issue in transplant medicine, that is the calcinarin inhibitor-mediated nephrotoxicity. So CNI, such as cyclosporin and entacrolimus, represent the most powerful anti-rejection drugs, the only one with strong inhibitory effects on memory T cells, which are the key mediators of allograft rejection. But we know that CNI use has always been embedded with uh, the idea that these molecules, especially at high doses, induce uh, arterial uh, vasoconstriction and tubular injury, which leads to ischemia and then tubular atrophy and strip fibrosis and glomerulosclerosis. So um, this is the, the, the concept that has represented the basis for many clinical trials that are ongoing, uh, also trying to prevent rejection without CNI or with minimal CNI doses. And uh, however, as beautifully summarized in the um, um, Palette's editorial, this is a very beautifully written um, editorial. Uh, there's more recent evidence, um, however, that uh, the concept of uh, CNI nephrotoxicity is not as straightforward as we initially thought. Because um, there are some histological features that were considered to be specific of CNI toxicity, such as afferent arterial hyaluronic as I just said, 
uh, that have also been described in patients that have never been exposed to CNI. However, regardless from how actually what uh, CNI and nephrotoxicity is, uh, these represent a major concern in, in clinical practice. And despite this, our understanding of CNI-mediated nephrotoxicity is still partial. And so to, to fill this crit critical knowledge gap, Mijuska and et uh, al. performed a series of uh, very elegant in vitro and in vivo experiments. So they, they started uh, by showing that human proximal tubular epithelial cells, when they're exposed to cyclosporin or TAC, show substantial um, changes in their morphology, including an elongated shape and loss of intracellular adhesions. And uh, this, uh, importantly, was associated with a translocation of HMGB1 from the nucleus into the cytosol, and there was an extracellular release of this molecule. So HMGB1 is a non-histone DNA binding protein that is involved in the transcriptional regulation of uh, nuclear gene expression. And um, this is a very well-known molecule to the immunologists as it represents a damp or a damage-associated molecular pattern that is released by injured cells for example, during ischemia reperfusion. And this activates primarily, but not only, innate immune cells through toll-like receptors. Intriguingly, this paper showed that CNI promote active HMGB1 release from tubular cells, even in the absence of cell apoptosis or death. So it's not just simply um, uh, release when the cells die. It's, a, it's an active process. And um, uh, as morphological alteration and HMGB1 release can be uh, associated with um, oxidative stress, these authors went deeper and found that CNI promote an increase in reactive oxygen species formation and mitochondrial dysfunction. And from molecular standpoint, they also showed that CNI-induced HMGB1 release was dependent on uh, ERK phosphorylation. Um, all these data so far have been generated in vitro. Then the authors uh, assess also the clinical impact of their findings and by using a murine model of CNI uh, toxicity. And in this model, they were able to observe the same alteration reported in cultured cells, including tubular injury and uh, uh, mitochondrial dysfunction, uh, together with HMGB1 release. Uh, and uh, a, a relevant and important experiment showed that an inhibitor of uh, ERK1 and 2 was able to mitigate HMGB1 release and kidney injury in this model of CNI toxicity. So um, overall, these are uh, very important findings that shed uh, light on a key issue in transplant medicine. First, they identified that HMGB1 release uh, is a potential mediator of CNI nephrotoxicity. And uh, this provides a rationale for testing urinary HMGB1 as a biomarker of CNI nephrotoxicity in transplant uh, patients. This paper also provides a potential therapeutic target to contrast CNI nephrotoxicity. So HMGB1 is a key activator of innate immune cells, as we just discussed. So its uh, neutralization may uh, ameliorate the CNI nephrotoxicity. 
and uh, uh, HMGB1 translocation from the nucleus into the cytoplasm, which has been shown uh, in response to CNI, uh, may promote tubular senescence that is an, another key feature, uh, feature of CNI toxicity. So a better understanding of the molecular mechanisms that are implicated in HMGB1 mediated kidney injury, including the, the, the specific mechanism that regulate HMGB1 post-translational modification will be, will be very important to develop new therapeutic uh, target. The fact that the ERK inhibitor reduced the severity of CNI nephrotoxicity and HMGB1 release is, is important, is promising, but ERK signaling has broad effects, cellular effects, so maybe a more selective strategy is needed to transfer this finding into the clinic. For example, the authors showed that TNF-alpha, L1-beta, interferon-gamma, and also TGF-beta that can be induced by uh, cyclosporin trigger uh, increased HMGB1 which provides other druggable uh, targets. And um, the authors also pointed mitochondrial dysfunction as another therapeutic target to contrast CNI-mediated nephrotoxicity. And there's um, data that mitochondrial-targeted antioxidants have been successfully used in multiple models of kidney injury. So the, the paper did not explicitly test whether um, cyclosporin-mediated nephrotoxicity is more severe than TAC, as suggested by clinical trial, but it showed that, that both CNI have similar mechanism of mitochondrial dysfunction and release of um, HMGB1. So um, in summary, these papers provides new important elements to understand the molecular mechanisms that are implicated in CNI-induced nephrotoxicity and identifies novel potential therapeutic targets. And uh, I think uh, quite importantly, this data also suggests that HMGB1 could be used as a non-invasive biomarker of uh, CNI-induced tubular injury. Um, and uh, just to link to the previous paper, this could be relevant also be, uh, beyond the kidney because CNI exerts also toxic effects uh, in pancreatic islet cells. Uh, so this finding may have uh, implication for uh, CNI toxicity uh, uh, outside the kidney. Yeah, I, you know, the couple things. I, um, I, I applaud the, um, the researchers, the investigators for kind of bringing this back to the service. I mean, if you look at uh, laboratories or published articles uh, looking at calcineurin inhibitor mediated nephrotoxicity, it's very minimal in the last, you know, a lot. You have to go way back into the literature. So I, I think this is really good because we're realizing these are the best still the best time-tested anti-rejection agents and to have a biomarker and maybe a way to address patients who need to be on them, which is most of our patients, um, is really important. I was wondering if, if you knew of any drugs out there that are commercially available, maybe being used for other reasons that, that block ERK-1-2 or maybe, uh, you know, do, do ACE inhibitors have any effect in this these pathways? I'm just wondering if there's some something by the time you, you develop a, a new therapy it takes a long time maybe there's something that that works so i think the um, so, so the finding is really um is really important with the erk inhibitor but this is such a common critical uh, pathway for um for the cell uh, activity that probably we would have to go deeper or maybe using uh 
other nanoparticle technology to target mm-hmm. uh, selected cells because it's, it's it's quite a critical pathway the the ERK. So uh, it's hard to to think that this would be the the the, the, the way to go, but is uh, is definitely a, a a good start to identify the molecular um, pathway that is implicated. Yes. Wonderful. Thanks, Paolo. So yep. I'm just going to quickly finish with the last paper, which is on completely uh, shifting gears to lung allocation. Um, I remember reviewing last year the one-year data on the new lung allocation policy that seemed to be increasing transplants, but also travel time and some cost concerns uh, with the new policy. I remember the lung allocation policy moving to uh, you know, DSA territories was kind of the first one, and then followed by liver, then followed by kidney. And um, so these authors looked at something really um, interesting that I learned a lot by reading this, which is the comparison of outcomes in transplants being done where the harvest is done by the same transplant team versus a different team, meaning purely a harvest team and surgeon do the um, organ harvest and then give it to the team to use for their recipient rather than the whole team together. This is very relevant because um, of the change in lung allocation and also COVID-19 where travel has become a significant concern. In, in the new allocation, whereas if you could have um, different team involved in the harvest, you wouldn't need to have the home team travel and uh, with cost and, and time and, and also risking COVID-19 infection with travel. Um, it'd be very attractive to consider um, this, this strategy. So th- this uh, group looked at the last several years uh, going back about from 2006 to 2018 and just looking at comparing what they call DT, which is different team transplantation versus ST, which is same team transplantation. And uh, just to see where the trends are going and what the results are, because there was also uh, a study in liver and kidney that suggested the outcomes were worse with different team transplants, although this really hasn't been broadly validated. So they took the entire population that had been transplanted. So there were over 21,000 patients and over 19,000 donors included. But overall, the percentage of DT, which is different team transplant, was 9.7% versus 90.3% of of same team transplant in this time period. Um, Importantly, though, as shown in figure one of the paper, this has decreased over time from back in 2006, this was 15.9%, and it's in 2018, it was 8.5%. Uh, the reason for this is not quite clear, but the thought was that there's been an expansion of significant expansion of lung transplantation, and a lot of the teams now are doing their own uh, organ harvests. But importantly, what they looked at were, were the outcomes comparing the two over time, which are, are really, uh, really relevant here because. Uh, again, the liver and the kidney study suggested otherwise. And I just refer you to um, first is figure two, which is a Kappa Meyer curve of one year graft survival in the overall cohort. This was unadjusted, so it shows some decreased survival with DT over ST. But when you when you actually um, you know take a take kind of a, a deeper dive, that was an unadjusted survival 
figure four, which is, um, uh, and figure five, I believe, which is patient and, and uh, a graft survival and figure five um, is um, single lung transplant. If you, if you look at them you, you, between, between the two, you actually see very similar survivals in double lung, uh, double lung transplant between uh, DT and ST and, and single lung transplant between uh, DT and ST. So if it, in an unadjusted overall, it looks like it may be worse, but when you break it down between double lung, um, which is the majority of transplants in single lung, uh, it looks like there is absolutely no difference in uh, patient and graft survival, whether it's a different team or, or a similar team. And also, they did a multivariate logistic regression model for the risk of primary graft dysfunction after double lung transplant. And DT was not one of the uh, risk factors for uh, primary graft dysfunction. And so, and also for one-year graft survival after double lung transplant. So basically what this tells us, and it would be interesting to have a lung transplant person comment on this. Um, there was um, not an editorial for this one, but I'm sure this will, you know, even though the numbers of, of different team transplant are going down, the outcomes look quite equivalent. And in fact, the authors mention um, that there are, uh, there is a significant development of harvest or organizations that are kind of supporting, uh, having uh, really providing more support than just having a different team. They're, they mentioned this specialized donor care facility model of care where there's a real emphasis um, on the, the donor surgery side from a different team and really formalizing it in a better way. So it would, it would be really interesting to see outcomes after um, several programs implement this real formalized structure of using a different team. So I think this could help uh, the impact, could help uh, expand different team transplant, especially in this era of increased travel with the new allocation policy and costs related to that. Um, they did discuss some of the costs because there's different cost structures using different teams versus single. Um, so that would need to be looked at more carefully. Certainly COVID-19 is very attractive to not have the, the home team have to travel. So I think this is really interesting. Again, I, I, I would imagine based on this paper that we may see an increase um, in different team transplant moving forward, especially if it's formalized. So anyway, I, um, I think we should end this. Uh, we've, we've had a great discussion about multiple papers. I want to thank Dr. Osaini and Dr. Crivetti for uh, reviewing these really important papers. And I will again appreciate it. And we will see you in October for another uh, episode of AJT Highlights. Thank you, everybody. Thank you, Josh. The opinions of the hosts of the show do not necessarily reflect those of the American Journal of Transplantation. For AJT Highlights, you can find us online at amjtransplant.com. That's amjtransplant.com. And follow us on Facebook and Twitter.